Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. This week I'm joined by friend of the show Bernie to review James Mangold's 2003 horror thriller Identity, which is currently streaming on Stars. How's it going, man? Very good, buddy. How about yourself? Uh, not too bad, you know. Just just another day reviewing movies, you know. <laughs> nice, man. I appreciate you having me back on, man. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Yeah, anytime, man. I mean, on my other podcast, Greenline Fair Films, uh, you've been a fantastic guest, and so I'm glad to kind of get you into uh, Daily Horror Habit and kind of talk about a film that I have uh, great admiration for. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we dive into identity, I thought it'd be fun. The recurring kind of thing when I have new guests on is um, to ask them what their first horror movie was or the first movie that kind of scared them as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm wondering what that was for you. So I have two non-answers, I guess. But <laughs> one is, so the Titanic is kind of a horror movie to me. And this Okay, really- I'm, I'm listening. I, I know this is kind of a weird way of putting it, but like, do you remember Leo DiCaprio at the very beginning of the movie? He has like an Italian sidekick that's his friend. Uh, I have not seen Titanic in a very long time. Well, basically, he has like a, a, a friend of his that he goes onto the ship with. Um, and mm-hmm. This Italian fella who's super friendly. Um, unfortunately, spoiler alert, he does die. Um, he gets, he like falls into the ocean and he gets killed by one of those smokestacks falling down. Okay. Yeah. That was like, when I was like six years old, that was one of the first times I got like super scared during a movie. Cause I was like, that'll totally happen to me when I'm an adult. Um, so was it, was it more so just like seeing the boat fall apart and like the, the smokestack crushing the kid pretty much yeah it's kind of a weird answer for a horror movie granted but the other one would be um so uh nightmare on elm street with freddy krueger there we go where he like opened like i forget if it's a girl or a guy that are taking a bath but he like opens up the drain and then he Mm -hmm. his claw comes out and he like hits them in the stomach or something and kills them like that I think it just comes out of the water. Mm-hmm. It's I think it comes out and it just and it's about to grab her, but then her mother's knocking on the door, and then the claw grabs her and pulls her under the water, and she almost drowns. There we go. Yeah, I just like I'm I've always been scared about taking baths and going swimming alone since then because I've always been like it's it's gonna happen to me, man. I'm just gonna get that was like uh, your your version of Jaws. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the much more toned down version of jaws <laughs> yeah no i can relate to that though i mean you gave titanic which would be like you might think that's like an unconventional answer at first but then at the same time it kind of captures that the first movie that scared most of us probably wasn't a horror movie right like even if you can't remember you could remember the first horror movie that scared you was nightmare on elm street but it's kind of just that first experience of a movie that makes you feel fear I think is really telling and can kind of like shape our experience with not only horror, but also just like film in gen in uh, general. Right. Right. I mean, even now, like I, I can't remember the last time I watched Titanic, but I still vividly remember when it's sinking, there's like a chef or something that's like on the top of it as it's going down and he's just pounding whiskey or something like that, you know, from his little justifiably. So yeah, exactly. So I, I relate to him a lot right now with what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
I think we all do in some regard. Right. right. But uh, I'm thrilled to have you here today to talk about uh, Identity. It's a movie that I'd seen once before and I'd been dying for a reason to revisit it. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, Identity finds 10 strangers seeking refuge from a torrential rainstorm at an isolated motel. Though once they arrive, they begin to be killed off one by one. Now the remaining survivors must try to uncover the killer's identity before they become his next victim. Uh, So what about this movie kind of stands out to you right from the start? I mean, I think that first I will say, you know, a lot of these obviously have spoiler alerts, but um, I highly recommend if someone hasn't seen this to go jump into that and then uh, listen to us because yeah, such a phenomenal movie to see without knowing what you're going into. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing for me about identity and we'll obviously jump into this more, but you have no freaking idea what is happening throughout the movie. You start to think, you know, and then 15, 20 minutes later, it takes a sharp turn and it's just a never ending kind of like a maze where you're trying to figure out where the ending is going and Mm -hmm. you're just, you're completely getting lost in the shuffle of it. Um, So just that aspect alone, I think it's such a unique component that a lot of really good films have. And, you know, credit to the director here. He did a phenomenal job of kind of weaving us through this. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that this was directed by James Mangold, who people probably know better for Ford vs. Ferrari and Logan. Mm -hmm. This was one of his earlier films that uh, he directed in 2003. But I found this really interesting quote from him that I think really speaks to what makes this film so special and kind of a standout amongst it. Cause it is very much a blending of genres. It's part thriller. It's part mystery. It's part slasher. Uh, and it kind of creates this interesting genre cocktail that makes for something that's pretty unique. But the quote was uh, the thriller and horror film are actually, I believe the only modern commercial genre in which formal innovation doing something different from the last guy is actually part of what your most base audience expects from the film. And he kind of goes on to say, Uh, This genre is all about non-convention rather than convention. Uh, And I think that really speaks to the fact that this is a very simplistic story at face value, but the way that he goes about making this unique is really remarkable and is a testament to like his ability to craft an unconventional narrative around something. Like the first thing that stands out to me is the reverse chronological order of introducing characters and how everybody ends up at the motel. Uh, Because we have just a litany of characters right from the start. We have uh, John Cusack, Ray Liotta, Amanda Pete, John Hawks, um, amongst the most notable. Mm-hmm. And seeing how all these people come together, because they all have different backgrounds, they have no connections to one another. Mm-hmm. And just the way in which we see, oh, this person came here because of this, right. because of that. And it's within the span of 10 or 15 minutes that we're all caught up on everybody. On And generally, like, the intro is usually pretty exposition heavy, mm-hmm. but in this, it kind of just streamlines the entire thing. And then it tells it in, in order and in reverse order sometimes. Right. Right. I mean, obviously the character development, it's rather quick, obviously it's a movie, but I mean, you get enough of a glimpse of all of these characters to get some sort of peace. And again, yeah. as it kind of goes through and you start to see, you know, people, dying people freaking out i think their characters just that small little glimpse that we get of them it's just a kernel that starts to expand um it's i mean you know we talked about it a little earlier like i i think Ginny is phenomenal um the actress that plays her uh clea duval um you know 
you see her in the scenes originally with her boyfriend and you start to notice that there's some tension, obviously, right? Um, yeah. Results, uh, obviously, in them getting into some sort of a, a riffraff. And out of nowhere, you know, she locks the door uh, and, and he's screaming at her to open the door to calm things down. And then obviously, you know, starts shaking, starts freaking out and there's dead silence. Um, mm-hmm. her just overall reaction to that whole entire scene, I think is some of the best acting in the movie. It's phenomenal. Yeah, that's a good example. Um, and I do like how they introduce these characters and you kind of get a vibe right away from each of the characters, mm-hmm. especially with Amanda Pete. I mean, Amanda Pete, I think is really underrated in this yes. as well. And in that we're given a brief glimpse at her backstory, mm-hmm. but then, her character just has this arc where it goes from, it kind of defies what you would expect of her character because it's alluded to that she's like a prostitute essentially. And she's on her way for a fresh start. It is. And not to get too sidetracked, but that is the kind of vibe of most of the characters. Characters are looking for a new start. Some characters are on the run. Some characters are starting a new chapter in their life. Some characters just want to forget their old life. And I think this movie is super underrated in terms of John Cusack performances. Mm -hmm in that he plays the ex-cop who's now like a limo driver, who's driving a movie star. And seeing him kind of take up the reins of his old life, mm-hmm. which he uh, left, he left behind. He's an ex-cop because he couldn't handle, he was talks about getting these uh, headaches from his past life and how stressful it was and the, all these things. Mm-hmm. And it really speaks to all of these characters having an arc mm-hmm. that kind of defies the face value assumption you make about them when you see them originally or introduce them originally. Right. I mean, I think you, you hit a really interesting point with that, how the characters have something that they're going to, um, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it made me think, what is that family then going towards? Maybe I missed the, cause I, I'm thinking, I think they were on vacation. Oh, they were on a vacation. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, another random, uh, early 2000s role by John C. McGilney, uh, Ginley, excuse me, who was in, uh, he plays the doctor mm-hmm. in uh, Scrubs. Mm-hmm. I think it's Dr. Cox. There you go. But it's just like a very random role. And yet he's, he shows that he has a range outside of the Dr. Cox persona, mm-hmm. which is the first thing I always think of. But like, he's been in legit movies. Like he was in Seven mm-hmm. with David Fincher and he had tons of little cameos like that uh, through his career, but. He's, I mean, every actor, you know, I can't say enough how great of a job they all do. Um, even uh, Carolyn, uh, uh, played by Rebecca de Mornay, the woman that's the first victim, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she, I think she plays a very good kind of a spoiled actress that's, oh my God, I, I forget exactly what happened, uh, you know, something along the lines of she was going to a movie and she had some sort of an issue on set and that's why she was leaving. Yeah. Um, And you pick that, you pick that up just from a brief phone call that she has. Right. Like you don't get a huge flashback in retrospect, Amanda Pete's flashback Mm -hmm. almost feels excessive Mm -hmm. because of how streamlined everybody else's backstory is in that we just get that brief glimpse into the actress's uh, personality, not only from the phone call, Mm -hmm. but at the very beginning when John Cusack hits Dr. Cox's wife with the car by accident and the actress just, she goes, I can't, I can't be associated with this. We just have to leave. Like you kind of learn, you're shown who these people are rather than being told who they are. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. Cause I mean, obviously it's, it's unfortunate when any character dies, but I still felt bad for her when she got killed. 
I, I think yeah. in a lot of cases, if something like that happened in other movies, um, you know, maybe that just, you know, that might be my liberal heart speaking, but I, I, uh, you know, for the most part, if someone's going to be a, a terrible person in a movie, I, I think that I would have a little bit more enjoyment in them not being around anymore. Um, hashtag Lori and the walking dead. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, she just, I, I don't know, you know, go diving into more of the depths. I mean, uh, like the way John Hawks plays his character from the start, oh, phenomenal. Of, you know, calling Amanda Pete's character a prostitute, essentially, or alluding to yeah. that. Um, He's a, he plays an aggressive dude in this movie, very much so. But I, like, there's so many turns. Again, we kind of mentioned that earlier. I never would have thought that he was some sort of random guy that didn't work there at the, the movie. right. You know? And that's what I think is really great about just the film in general in terms of its twists and the different turns that the movie takes is that you can't guess a lot of the things that happen, which I personally like in movies just because I feel like most movies, they approach their twists with a pretty heavy hand. So by the time you get to the twist, you could more or less suss that out yourself. Right. Whereas in this, there are so many different twists and turns that are just dropped on the audience that they end up being more impactful and you end up being legitimately shocked. Uh, and to your point about kind of this uh, a lo- a, 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 this qualified cast, I was going to say illustrious, I'll say qualified cast, mm-hmm. was uh, that Mangold actually says like he wanted to signal the audience with the presence of actors uh, that they respect. Mm-hmm. And they were parachuting these well-known people into a genre and trying to make it a smarter type of movie mm-hmm. rather than just nine attractive actors getting killed, which is why I think you start to form certain – uh, feelings for actors that if this was more of a generic slasher, you probably wouldn't. Like to your point earlier, you felt bad when the actress gets decapitated. Right. And it's like, if this was more of just like a straight slasher, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't care. But since it's presented as being something other than a horror movie or a slasher initially, you're more invested in them because you actually get a sense of who they are. Mm-hmm. They're not just like, the horny moron or whatever kind of the genre tropes, like there's a little more sustenance to them. Right. So that way, when the movie takes that hard right turn into being a slasher, essentially in a lot of different, like a supernatural slasher, I'll say mm-hmm. that it ha- carries a lot more weight in it that I don't think a majority of s- conventional slashers do. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, I mean, there are so many different turns that happen here before, obviously the penultimate one where we figure out mm-hmm. really what is happening um, story. Mm-hmm. What was kind of the most, not necessarily profound, but the most startling kind of a turn that you saw in Identity? I think the moment where you realize you don't know what kind of movie this is, is when we get to the portion of the story where Ray Liotta shows up and he presents himself as being a cop that has a convicted felon in his backseat. Mm -hmm. The convicted felon eventually escapes and that's when people start dying. So you kind of just assume you know the trajectory of the film or the direction. We're given a brief scene where the convict is running away from the hotel and he di- he goes into this diner, essentially. Mm-hmm. And when he goes into the diner, you can see the hotel in the background. And the hotel is, I don't know, a couple miles away. Like he's been hoofing it. Right. When he gets into the diner and he turns around to look out the window, the motel is directly next to the diner all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And that perspective shift and being like, this makes no sense. You realize like, oh. I don't understand the parameters of this movie. And that's something that's incredibly exciting because up until that point, 
nothing was an indicator of it being like a twilight zone or supernatural in some sense. Right. Right. Um, I had a similar one to that. Uh, when uh, John C. McGinley's character gets hit by by the car um, as mm-hmm. trying to protect his son. And then, yeah. um, I forget what number they had, but they were basically tr- figuring out that everyone that died had a key on them. Um, and yeah. it's going in order, essentially, of some mm-hmm. way. And they found it in his hand, and they knew he didn't have it. Um, yeah. That like when all the characters start freaking out, they have no idea. You know, in theory, they don't know what's going on. I think that's really kind of when I took a step back. There's been very few times I've had to pause a movie before, but mm-hmm. Jesus, like, <laughs> what the heck is going on now? You know? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, going through that, um, like, when do you think you started figuring out that this was? this was leading back to uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince's character, uh, Malcolm. Uh, so, yeah. So that's one of the things that you've trying to be, you've been trying to figure out what the connection is because there's been a parallel or what we perceive as being a parallel storyline to the motel scene is that it's cutting back and forth between this inmate that is, has a 24 hour stay of execution essentially. And his case is being, reviewed by the judge essentially while we perceive the events at the motel occurring. Right. So the big twist being that these characters are at the motel are all different identities that this serial killer has created in his mind essentially. Mm -hmm. And so the more frequently that case is being uh, dissected essentially, and we're cutting back and forth to it, then you start to realize, okay, this is what's actually going on. That was kind of the biggest indicator or that was the most concrete indicator. Mm-hmm. But then by that point, the the while it's two independent narratives that are actually together, mm-hmm. both halves are equally interesting and equally engaging that I never wanted to spend more time with one or the other. Right. So that by the time when you find out, oh, these are actually interconnected, it was more satisfying than I think if the motel had been interesting and then the court case had just been a court case or something like that. No, absolutely. Um, My thinking on it was too, that you go through so many different phases of figuring or thinking, you know, who the killer is Um, Mm -hmm. like there was a point, I mean, you know, obviously when we figure out that uh, Ray Liotta's character is also a prisoner, Uh, you instantly think, okay, is there some way that him and um, Jake Busey's character, Robert Maine, are working together? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like what was, who was your kind of go-to that you thought was committing these murders? And when did you realize that wasn't the case? I assumed, I assumed that it was John Hawks who plays Larry, the like sleazy motel guy, just because of how sleazy and scummy is. And, um, his kind of just like hostility towards Amanda Pete's character constantly. Like he keeps calling her a slut and a whore and all of these things. And then when uh, John Cusack's investigating essentially, and he goes into the trailer and he sees that uh, Larry essentially has been like defacing his porno Mm -hmm. and like cutting out the faces of women and stuff like that and writing stuff all over it. Mm -hmm. I assume that he was because the night, his knife, one of his many knives is missing. Oh, that's right. But then, but then, like, that was my original guess was him because it would be too obvious if it was Jake Busey, like the convict. But then when Larry has to watch Jake Busey's character and they come back and the baseball bat is sticking down Jake Busey's throat, I was like, there's no way that that little squirrely guy could do that. Like, right. Essentially. Mm. 
But uh, this movie has some brutal kills. Yeah, dude. That's why. That's why I keep referring to it as like part slasher because of how graphic the movie is, which is super shocking. Because I don't know about you, I was not expecting that. I assumed it would be something along the lines of like Psycho. Somebody gets stabbed or something, and that's it. But then we get a decapitation. We get a frozen corpse. We get a baseball bat shoved down somebody's throat. Uh, and then at the end, we have Amanda Pete's death, and we have a mini shootout. And it's just, it's far more graphic than I was anticipating. And I think it really lends to the kind of seedy, scummy tone of the movie. What did you think of the setting of the motel? I mean, so I always have like this weird thing when I watch horror movies where I try and put myself in in the character's position, try and figure out how I get out of there. I wasn't very much bought into this idea that there's only two roads and you can't drive through. I was like... There's, there's got to be some kind of a rocky area where you can just, you know, you can drive past it somehow. I don't know. So, I mean, just that part wasn't fully convincing. But putting that aside, I mean, I hate motels already. Um, so watching that just gave me more of, you know, uh, kind of clearance in my head that I'm not going to go and, and stay at those things. But it's just you're all so tight knit and close together, right? In theory, Mm -hmm. you would think some of these murders, you would be able to hear like, for instance, Clea Duvall's character, um, uh, Ginny, she like, she's listening to her boyfriend essentially die or he's getting choked out in some way. You'd think there'd be more noise and someone else would have heard that and run in. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Small things like that, or that Jake Busey character's, uh, you know, getting a bat down his throat. I feel like there would be a couple of screws in that. But, um, you know, the thing that was freaking me out is there was a point where I started thinking Ed, John Cusack's character, was doing it. Mm -hmm. Because he's involved in almost every death in one way or another. Whether it's hitting John McKinley's wife, um, to originally kind of catapult us into the motel situation. um, Dealing with uh, John McKinley itself when he gets killed, like he tells Clea Duvall's ter- character and the little kid to go to the car. Um, so I think he starts to, you know, become more of a nefarious looking character as it thins the herd to him, Ray, and Amanda Pete essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, when I saw that kid at Amanda Pete's, uh, when she's at that like orange grove or yeah. Florida. At the very end. Yeah, I, I'm i going to be honest. I was not expecting that in any freaking way. Yeah. That's like, I thought that was one of the better endings for a movie like this. And it did it justice. It really kind of, you know, brought it home. Yeah, the film does a really fantastic job of kind of subverting every hypothesis that you could have about it. Yeah. You know, like they, it presents multiple characters that come off as shady or ulterior motives, especially Ray Liotta's character, like, I think he probably does the does the worst job of hiding his motivation or rather hiding that his character is not who he says he is just because his character is so over the top. Right. Like his number one priority is supposed to be watching this convict. And then he sees Amanda Pete like bent over getting something out of the vending machine. Instantly, he just goes into like slimy, you know, let's I'll buy her Cheetos and then we'll smash. Like right. he just he gets super scummy super quickly. But then also just like his demeanor does not speak to what you would assume that a cop would be. And uh, John Cusack actually calls him out on it, uh, calls him out essentially on it to Amanda Pete. She's like, 
you're not a cop. You're a driver. The real cop is here. He goes, oh, the cop that's managed to lose the convicted felon. Like, clearly nobody is buying that Ray Liotta is a cop. <laughs> right. He has, but, he has a great yeah. job of always coming off, like, whatever role he has. He always seems to be a little bit of a slime ball in any of his roles yeah. in that sense. So, I mean, he's a perfect character for that. Um, what did you think of the ending? Um, were you, were you a fan of it? Did you wish that it, it went in a somehow different direction? No, I really liked the ending and I agree with the point that you made about that being a really satisfying ending for me, like on top of the fact that I really like endings that are kind of like mean spirit in a way, like the good guys don't win. Right. Essentially. We see that the convicted felon ends up freeing himself from the prison transport. And then he essentially murders the last identity, which is Amanda Pete. And we find out that the little boy was actually the killer. Right. The whole movie. And I really like that because a, you can't guess it, but also the road to getting there is not, it's not convoluted for the sake of being convoluted. Like, yes, you could not guess that ending, but, and I think it's funny. We get that little montage at the end of the little kid, like doing all the murders, like, he blows up the car at one point and then you see him just slow motion walking away and it's like <laughs> nobody saw him walking away. Right. Yeah. But, come on. You'd think they'd run yeah. around the corner by that point. Yeah. But I mean, uh, that montage aside, that kill montage aside, um, I do like that it doesn't present anything as being blatantly unbelievable or it doesn't blatantly discredit the possibility that it could be this character. It could be that character. Mm-hmm. It's more so that you just wouldn't think that it would be that character you wouldn't think it would be the little boy right and i'm in favor of again some movies you can't guess the ending because mm-hmm. how many movies are you actually surprised by anymore a majority of the time and i don't know i enjoy, i appreciate a mystery that's entertaining that i couldn't guess mm-hmm. rather than something that's kind of just boilerplate and i could guess it 30 40 minutes into the movie right the superhero wins he gets the girl they live happily ever after i mean there is essentially happily ever after well so my question is then are all of the characters that we see in his dream or in that you know john cusack amanda pete realm of the you know story mm-hmm. are all of those his um you know his uh ulterior identities or however you'd kind of proclaim it because you know i don't know i obviously i don't know too much about mental health to that extent <laughs> um but you know, you kind of run out from the gate and there's what, four women at play, right? The, the mom, Clea Duvall, uh, yep. Rebecca De Mornay, the actress and Amanda Pete. Um, are they supposed to like, what are they representing in that sense? What are, are these each character representing a point of his life or are they just complete manifestations that he's created? That's a good question. I think that, it's all the characters are supposed to reflect essentially parts of his personality or people from his life previous to being incarcerated. Like I could very much see Amanda Pete being the type of girl that when he was a young man that rejected him or something. And that's why one of his uh, identities, Larry is such a misogynist and he just calls her a whore the entire time and whatnot. And it's like, it's very clearly Larry being a representation of his aggression and hate for women in a lot of ways. But then at the same time, maybe one of the characters who's more reserved, kind of like John Cusack or more even tempered, maybe that is a version of somebody that he could have become if he didn't have these awful uh, 
experiences in his life. It, rather, Amanda Pete, I think, is supposed to represent his mother because he says that his mother was a prostitute. I'm pretty sure. I, you're right. Yeah. And then yeah, he, so, and didn't he say like, I forget what the phrasing is, but he says something akin to like, you're a bitch or something like that. And then the kid kills her. And it, yeah, it's something, something like something about whores, <laughs> something not very nice. Yeah. Something a little too, I mean, it's aggressive, I guess, right for this movie, but overall a little too aggressive in general. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, this movie is one of those movies and you hit on it a couple times. It You have no idea where it's going and there's so few movies like this that are out there. Can you think mm. of any other movies that have these kind of twists and turns where the ending is completely a question mark? You know, I mean, there's so many good, like, mystery movies like this. It's just that a majority of them I feel like you can guess and that's not a knock on the movies necessarily. Like, one of the movies that I was thinking about recently while watching this was um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Did you ever see that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of those movies where I feel like there were it was more heavy handed towards the end of the film and guessing who it was. Yeah. But for a majority of the film, it does a fantastic job of dancing between who it could be. Like you assume it's this it's one of the teens in the group. Right. But then you assume, oh no, it's probably one of the other ones. Like it does a good job of kind of deceiving the audience in a way that for three fourths of the film, I think is pretty spectacular. But again, it gets a little heavy handed in indicating who the killer is at the end of the movie. Right. But right off the top of my head, in terms of like horror slasher mysteries, I would say something like that okay. is pretty solid. Okay. I like, you have much more of a, uh, good library of knowledge on movies I do, so I'll take your word for it. I I just have an abundance of free time, my friend. <laughs> Mazel tov, man. But uh, one of my, so one of, I had asked you earlier what you thought of the motel setting and uh, something that I wanted to touch on with identity that I really, really love about this movie that kind of is one of my favorite sort of like subgenres of uh, horror or mystery movies is single location storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like having one setting that has 90% of the film unfolded and that being the motel. Um, and it just, it seems like such a creatively limiting idea. Like why would you want to limit yourself to one setting? Like something like the thing, which takes place in that one Antarctic research facility, like that seems very limiting. But then if you watch the thing and you see all of the, the insane things that John Carpenter is able to fill in that, of the types of events that occur there. Mm. And it's the same thing with this movie mm. in identity in that there's so many different storytelling avenues. And yeah, occasionally we cut to the, uh, the deposition and whatnot with the judge and the convict outside of the motel. But other than that, like it's this one location and kind of keeping this mystery strung along mm -hmm. to this location is something that's just super satisfying. And I think that it really forces directors to make, smart creative choices that don't make it feel like something that the last person that made a movie like this did no 100 percent. i mean i don't know if necessarily you would have needed a bigger um you know kind of an area where they're working through um mm -hmm. i think you know the you, you hit it a little bit earlier when jake Busey's character that second prisoner is running away and gets to that little factory or whatever that is uh, mm -hmm. And then he, he looks out the window and he's back right into that motel area. Uh, yeah. I, you know, we could have gone as far as we wanted. I think somehow, you know, and ha that crazy, you know, Malcolm guy's brain, we would have somehow found ourselves right back in, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
so I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, man. I mean, the director just did a phenomenal job of, of explaining this and kind of creating this, this idea of a movie and, and bringing it home. Yeah. The movie really has this sleazy kind of the sleazy looming dread mm. throughout the whole movie. And like for me, one of my things is when I, especially when I revisit older movies, I can't stand sleazy movies. Mm. Like I hate movies that kind of just, they've got these gross characters in them that are just like over the top in all these different regards and stuff. But I feel like for this movie, it works really well in that it's this flea bag motel. Mm. The owner is this like alcoholic guy that's obsessed with hating women and all these different things, but it really kind of crafts the narrative that you assume it's going in one direction. Mm-hmm. But then again, when the plot gets completely turned on its head and the viewer has no fucking clue what's going on, mm-hmm. I feel like that does a great job of showing kind of like a jarring contrast between the first half of the film and the second half in a really unique way that kind of makes this film a really special movie that I never hear people talk about ever, whether it's a conversation about James Mangold or a story about or a conversation about just horror mil- slasher mysteries, whatever you want to call it in general. Like I never hear people talk about this movie and I think it, it is a really fantastic movie that doesn't get nearly enough love. Very much. So. I mean, this is definitely one of the more underrated movies. I was talking to a couple of my buddies about, um, you know, different types of thrillers that I like uh, and to a, to a T, I mean, obviously it's anecdotal, none of them had seen it. Um, they're obviously mm-hmm. familiar with Amanda Pete and John Cusack, but um, you know, I, I think the more movies that are that come out like this, rather than the you know seventy third iteration of Pirates of the Caribbean, I think that would be better <laughs> for everyone. You know, um, <laughs> would you be ever interested in a a, a follow up to this, or is there a follow up available to Identity? Probably not. To be honest, I'm I'm one of those guys like I'm one and done unless you're crafting it with a franchise in mind like I just can't see where this it's such a succinct piece of storytelling mm-hmm. that I just can't see them being able to replicate this scenario again in a fresh and unique way especially when the twist is half of the enjoyment of the movie is figuring out that oh shit this is why this has been happening. I feel like the mat once that magic is gone Obviously, you can still enjoy the original film on a rewatch because it's so well constructed. But to try to continue this in a way, like I feel like that story's done with. And if they did do a continuation of the serial killer story, Malcolm Rivers, it does kind of an injustice to the ending of the original film. Mm-hmm. I love how concise and just like finite the ending is, and that it's that again that mean spirited ending that I'm always chasing in horror movies. That it's like. The good guys win and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. The worst possible thing that could happen has happened and you have to accept it and move on. Like <laughs> to undo that, I feel like changes the legacy almost of the original. Yeah. But how about you? What do you think? Would you? So I thought way too much into this. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I do that with everything. So <laughs> um, I thought about, and this again, this might be a little bit too deep down the rabbit hole, but what if if they had a, a second iteration of this, right? And mm-hmm. Malcolm's on the run, and then we find out Malcolm is actually an identity of somebody else. So that was an identity with it's like um, those Russian Easter egg things or whatever. I, nesting dolls. Yeah, my parents are gonna kill me for not remembering. That. I was gonna say, dude. <laughs> um, but you know, something akin to that, I think, could be possible, just because. It does leave us on a note where he does escape 
and mm-hmm. obviously again you know i love the ending and i love you know you you hit it right on the head it's such a finite ending and you you feel sick almost because Amanda <laughs> finally, like, she's made it. She's lived through all this craziness. Like, she's finally at her orange grove. Mm-hmm. And then life happens, you know. And then a little kid shows up and calls her a whore and kills her. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty b- brutal uh, finish to a story that looked like it was going to have an optimistic ending. Right, you know. And, I mean, you know, well, let me ask you this. What do you think is worse just on – like, do you think it's worse that Amanda Pete died or that Malcolm escaped? Because I actually, like Amanda Pete, in my opinion, she's obviously, you know, she's a real character in a movie, but mm. she's in in the sense she's a figment of his imagination. Where yeah, I think I think someone, you know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's. It is kind of crushing and bittersweet for Amanda Pete's character who has this kind of this, uh, shall we say, interesting past. And to see her get that fresh start and to get her achieve her goal in her dream, even if she is a figment essentially of his imagination, like getting to see her get a win after all she's been through is like kind of sweet and nice. But then at the same time, like, I don't know. I just can't see the movie ending any other way than it does. No, 100%. I do. I love the concept so much and the idea of having a film where somebody struggles to deal with their multiple personalities and to stop them from either flourishing or trying to kill them uh, is really intriguing. At the same time, though, like I want to see James Mangold make something within this same genre yeah. rather than these. I mean, I don't foresee that happening because he's making such a name for himself now with films such as Logan, which I love, and uh, Ford vs. Ferrari, which I thought was fine for a racing movie. Uh, I would rather see him do small-scale storytelling like this Mm -hmm. because he shows that even though this movie feels very small-scale, he's got these big-name actors in it. Mm -hmm. He's able to pull off these crazy kills. He's able to tell this or uh, portray the writer's story in a really creative and kind of atmospheric way. And I would just love to see him do something similar in a similar vein. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I'm right there with you. I I know movie theaters aren't open right now, but I would definitely risk getting Corona if there was another. (laughs) I hope not. I mean, I'll take a a video on demand release, but (laughs) whatever gets us a second one or something akin to this, I'm all for it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But do you have any kind of closing thoughts on identity? I know we covered Mostly everything. Um, it, you know, the only other thing that I would just say is that um, John Cusack's character is, I, I don't know, it's it, he has such a weird arc and um, <laughs> how he dies. Um, although it's like, it's satisfying on one end. I wish that him and Amanda had gone to the Orange Grove and that yeah. it had killed them just because they have such a fantastic chemistry exactly you know um i mean to be fair it's hard not to have fantastic chemistry with amanda beach she's yeah um i i watched the make there's like a mini making of featurette and she talked about like the sexual chemistry of their two characters but then she spent the rest of her interview talking about how she just like wants to bang john cusack and make out with john cusack all the time she goes i kept asking james mangold if we could have a sex scene and all this stuff and it's just like that playful attitude came across really well for her character, uh, their characters rather. Right. And just, I don't know that they, they, 
felt very natural in a way that I was not expecting their characters to. I mean, there's a lot of times where you have, you know, two leading actors who have some sort of a romantic relationship or they're on course for that. You don't Mm -hmm. see it. You don't really see it. Right. Um, We've had that time and time again, whereas this you clearly see there's some sort of a sexual tension there, but I'm honestly glad that they didn't go there. Cause I didn't think it was yeah. necessary. I think, no. the, I think they kissed at one point and that was pretty much it. If I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. you didn't, I think he lean he leans in. I don't even think he kisses her because oh, he when he grabs her face, he like leans in and he whispers in her ear. He tells her that it's going to be okay. Cause he's basically figured this out essentially what he has to do. By the way, I, you know, I'm definitely not uh, the number one person that people should listen to on advice with women. But if you just <laughs> grab a woman's face and whisper in her ear, it's going to be okay. That's probably not the best uh, move to make in general. <laughs> it helps when you look like John Cusack, I think. I guess you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> not for us, though. Not for us. This is a highly underrated, though, John Cusack role, I think. Mm. I just love how his character right out of the gate is just like, fuck you. This what like I know how I need to handle this situation because I have experience in this. And no matter what you have to say is not going to detract me from what I need to do. Like when the uh, supermodel or the actor actress that he's driving in the car, he tells her to give him the cell phone to call an ambulance after he hits Dr. Cox's wife. And she goes, no, I'm not giving you my phone away. He just takes a tire iron without thinking, just smashes that window, clears the glass. He goes, give me the fucking phone. <laughs> and then he and then he gets um, Ginny's boyfriend to pull, or he gets Ginny to pull over. And he's like, do you have a cell phone? Mm-hmm. And the guy is, the boyfriend's like being a dickhead. And he's like, oh, bro, I don't know who you are. He leans it over to him. And he goes, you got a fucking cell phone? And like, he just does not give a fuck. Like John Cusack is totally in his element in this movie. And I just love it. I mean, I I definitely don't know. I haven't seen all of John Cusack's movies, but going back to that, I mean, think about what characters he played, right? He was in Being John Malkovich. He was in Serendipity. Um, You know, he was in Con Air, I guess, is kind of in the realm (laughs) of, you know, action, not even horror or anything like that. No. This is such a unique character for him, and he just hits it out of the park again. I think it just goes to show what a a vibrant actor that he is. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'd mostly seen him in, like, comedies or dramas. Mm -hmm. So I'd seen him in uh, High Fidelity, obviously, and then a little more recently, like, Hot, (laughs) Hot Tub Time Machine. Classic, yeah. It's just, yeah, classic classic cinema, but uh, yeah, it is. It's nice to see him in a role of authority, whereas the majority of the time, I feel like that's not the case. He's usually the underdog, or he's the over eager guy, like in Con Air, like you said. Uh, so yeah, I think this is just one of those. Have you ever seen that one? Which one? America's Sweetheart. I've not. No. It, that is just if if you want to impress a lady, Jay. Yeah. Not America's Sweetheart. Yeah. Put a little little Chanel forty five on the the old. You're good. To <laughs> I'll take that under advice. <laughs> but uh, I think that's gonna do it for our uh, our convo on uh, identity. Thanks again, man, for coming on and picking a movie that uh, I have great admiration for. And you're probably the only other person I know in my like close group of friends that's seen this. 
So it's a movie that I hope we can help get the word out about. No, absolutely. I mean, I appreciate you mentioning that I'm the most intelligent and thoughtful friend that you have. So that, that means a lot. You know, man, we, we all interpret things in different ways, man. So I'm <laughs> glad you interpreted it that way. <laughs> yeah, I will say, obviously, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So being able to, to jump on this one as well. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a, a huge honor, man. So I, I appreciate <laughs> time I, can... I appreciate that. No, honestly, it's phenomenal listening to them. And you always have great... Uh, you know, great people on here. So, uh, you know, anytime that I can come on and do something like this with you, man, I'm more than happy. Anytime, dude, you have an open invitation. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.